I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a conversation featuring fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, business, and more. My guest today is Jen Fisher, who is Deloitte's Chief Wellbeing Officer in the United States. Our conversation is being recorded today by Zoom. Jen Fisher currently serves as Deloitte's Chief Wellbeing Officer in the United States, where she drives the strategy and innovation around work life, health, and wellness. In her role, she empowers Deloitte's people to prioritize their well-being so they can be at their best in both their professional and personal lives. Jen Fisher is a leading voice on workplace well-being and creating human-centered organizational cultures. She frequently speaks and writes about building a culture of well-being at work and serves as the work-life integration editor-at-large for Thrive Global. Jen also hosts Work Well, a podcast series on the latest work-life trends. She's co-author of the just-released book, Work Better Together, How to Cultivate Strong Relationships to Maximize Well-Being and Boost Bottom Lines. Jen, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here today. As we were chatting off air, I wanted to start just by setting the stage, as it were. How, how did you get into well-being as a professional focus? It's a great question. Um, and it's, you know, in many ways um, came about out of personal necessity. So my, my, you know, my personal life and my work life, if you will, um, collided and perhaps even crashed and burned. Um, <laughs> so... Um, you know, about six and a half years ago, um, I found myself really um, kind of completely burnt out to the point where I really couldn't, you know, I could get out of bed, but I couldn't engage in, in work or in, in life really in any meaningful way. Um, and, you know, I, and so I had to, I had to step back and, and take some time off from work um, and get myself, you know, physically healthy, but also um, coming to terms that I was struggling with my mental health at the time, you know, with depression and anxiety. And so I had to, to deal with that um, as well. And really, um, you know, through that process of to redefining well-being and, and really redefining my whole life, if you will, kind of life by design and, and deciding, you know, what I wanted out of life, what I wanted out of a career. Cause I hadn't, I hadn't done that. Um, and we can kind of dig into the importance and, and the meaning of that um, and the purpose of that, but I really hadn't done that. My, my whole career up to that point, I just, I kind of, you know, worked really hard and did good work. And, you know, the, the next opportunity came or the next promotion came and I worked really hard and did really good work. And, you know, and that was kind of always my philosophy. I never really thought about like, okay, well, like, who do I want to be and what do I want to do? And what does that look like? And so, um, you know, the, the working really hard and what my life looked like were, were all choices that I made, but it was, you know, I prided myself on getting to the gym for an hour a day. And that probably meant that I got three to four hours of sleep per night and I was working or doing whatever else I was doing in my life at the time. 
And that wasn't sustainable. I mean, that among, in addition to some other things really led to the burnout. And so I had to kind of reckon with all of those things <laughs> and redefine what that was going to look like in my life. And, and I became very passionate about that um, and, and passionate more so about wanting to help others not get to where I got in order to be successful, to really you know, be thoughtful and intentional. And so I went back to my leader at Deloitte at the time, and I was actually going to resign from the firm because I, you know, there, there wasn't a role like that at Deloitte. And so she was the one who pushed back on me and kind of had the bigger vision to say, you're not going anywhere. Um, you know, if you need this, then why doesn't everybody else at Deloitte need it? So put together a business case and see if this is something that you can make come to life for our organization. And so that was about five and a half years ago, I think. Um, and yeah, I mean, I put together, spent some time, put together a business case, you know, talked with a handful of leaders, asked them to give me a chance and, you know, basically said, give me a chance. And if it doesn't work, I'll leave. Um, and I'm still here. <laughs> so, so far, I think it's going pretty well. <laughs> um, pre-burnout, pre-chief wellbeing officer at, at Deloitte, I'm curious about what was it that you were doing in practical terms, uh, you know, your professional life? And where did these norms of, or, or goals of success come from? And, I, and I'm using your life uh, as a case study, perhaps for other people to recognize um, that they too are not living a life by design, but maybe they feel they don't have a choice and, and the goals of success are set for them by other people. So I'm curious about what that was like for you. Yeah, well, I think you're on to something exactly. And, and it didn't, um, I don't think I realized it until kind of much later that one of the, I think one of the biggest contributors to my burnout was the fact that I was, I was defining success externally, right? I didn't have an internal definition of what does success for Jen Fisher look like? I had never really sat down and thought about that in, in any meaningful way. And nobody had really coached me to do that either. And so I looked around and, you know, I work at Deloitte where we have some of the most brilliant people. I mean, I'm, my colleagues are some of the most brilliant people in the world, incredibly successful, incredibly smart. <laughs> and so I just looked at people and I was like, okay, well, they're really successful. So I'm going to start doing that. Okay. Well, they're really successful. So I'm going to start doing that. Okay. Well, they're really successful. I'm going to start doing that. And kind of every time I accomplished or I achieved, I didn't, I didn't stop to like, you know, relish in my accomplishment or celebrate my accomplishment. I was like, I was just like, okay, I did that. What's next? You know, it was like this constant striving because I was striving for other people's definition of success or what I, not even their definition of success, what I perceived their definition of success was. Right. So it wasn't like I talked to them and said, Hey, how do you define success? I just kind of like 
looked around and said, okay, well, what does success look like here? Um, or what does success look like for that person? Cause I think that they're really successful or I want to emulate them or I want to be like them. Um, but never really defined that for myself. So there was never really a huge sense of like satisfaction or celebration. It was just like, okay, I did that. Now what's next? You know, I never took the time to, to celebrate those accomplishments and say, you know, is this enough? Is this enough for me? Is this getting me closer to where I want to be? Is this who Jen Fisher wants to be? And, and that's exhausting (laughs) that in itself you know, can, can lead to burnout. And so I think that was a huge factor in my burnout, in addition to kind of the way that the choices I was making in terms of like living how I was living my life. How hard was it for you to, wow, I don't even know if this is a way to describe it, but in some ways have, have a positive epiphany that things were bottoming out negatively for you. Was it hard to confront that reality for yourself? It was, and I was in complete denial. And here's the thing about burnout, you know, that I talk about a lot is, you know, burnout is, is like the frog in the boiling pot of water, right? Burnout sneaks up on you. Um, you know, it starts out as, you know, you're, you're tired, then you're exhausted. Then, you know, I mean, there's lots of signs and symptoms. You're, you know, you're moody. I think a lot of us have been feeling a lot of those things <laughs> over the last 15 months, right? That doesn't necessarily mean burnout, but it, you know, it, it kind of sneaks up on you. So you start to see and recognize, and more importantly, people that for me, people that cared about me were kind of like, Hey, you know, you're a little off, you know, you know, I mean, they, they started to kind of recognize that I was, you know, I was very moody. I was very reactive. My work product was suffering. My relationships, quite frankly, were suffering. Um, but I didn't want to admit it. You know, I was in complete denial because again, I looked around and, everybody I looked at, I was like, how come they have it all together? You know, like they're the, you know, perfect employee, perfect spouse, perfect child, you know, like whatever all the roles that all of us play in our life, everybody else. I mean, we're great at showing up and pretending like we have it all together, right? Like we can, (laughs) you know, and then you kind of, you start to have the conversations or I did later on, but I didn't want to admit it because for me at that time, you know, like I, I just felt like it was failure, right? Like, why can't I, show up and be all of these things because it seems like everybody else can. And so there must be something wrong with me. And so I fought it. Um, and I was just of the mindset that I will power through and at some point it will get better. Um, and, and so I don't know that I ever actually like accepted it until my body finally said, okay, if if you're not going to do something about it, I'm going to, I'm going to make you do something about it. (laughs) does make me wonder like why like Deloitte's huge in in the United States 80,000 employees maybe Uh, over 100,000 but yeah and then globally I think we're 250 or 300 it's huge (laughs) yeah 
And and so, you know, as, as you said, if you're looking around at your colleagues as well as at other professional peers that you have and, and recognizing perhaps that there's this inauthentic presentation of, 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 you know, we're doing fine, but probably people aren't. Um, I'm kind of surprised that it took this long for Deloitte to have a more intentional attitude towards well-being. I wouldn't say that we didn't have an intentional attitude towards it. I, there just wasn't. Um, I mean, we've all we've had you know a long history of you know programs and tools and resources that are and benefits that are available for our people to avail themselves of that are you know well in the well-being you know well-being health space. Right? We just didn't have you know, a, a single, a, a leader, um, like the role that I have now that is, I mean, honestly, when I, when I talk about my role and I get into the specifics, it's, it's really, it's less about the programs that we have because we have incredible programs and we have a long history of having incredible programs. It's culture and it's culture change, right. And it's mindset and it's behavior change, right. I mean, you take a high performance organization, high performing individuals, really human beings in general, <laughs> are not very good at, you know, we sacrifice ourselves above all else, right? You know, like we say, I'll sleep when this gets done. I'll exercise when this gets done. I'll do, you know, we, we always kind of put, oh, we put aside or, you know, push off the self-care um, components. And, and really it was kind of a, a recognition or the business case was, was a recognition of, you know, high performance and, and well-being aren't mutually exclusive. In fact, they go hand in hand. And I think, you know, the the world was in a lot of ways, the corporate world in a lot of ways was starting to really recognize that. I mean, there's been industries that recognize that. Look at sports, right? <laughs> that, that have recognized that for a long time. But it just, there the the it, it hasn't really been until recently, Deloitte and otherwise, where, you know, there's been an expectation of the workforce that they work for organizations that care about who they are, not just at work, <laughs> but like who they are as whole people. Um, and so, I, you know, so I think there, you know, Deloitte's always had a long history of supporting our people with the right programs and benefits, but this is more about, okay, how do we look at our culture and our cultural norms at a time when work was really shifting and changing the way that we work, the technology, I mean, technology was ever present, you know, we continue to kind of adopt and adopt and adopt technology, but we haven't really adapted well to it. And so what did that look like in the workplace? And so there were a lot of kind of factors that said, okay, we need to kind of take a step back and look at the way that we're working and, you know, cultural norms that have been around for a long time. And they probably had a good, you know, they were good intentioned at the time, but they just, you know, like we have a tendency as human beings, we don't like change. So, we, you know, continue to do things the way we've always done them, whether they're good for us or not, we just continue to do them, right? <laughs> and so it was, it was kind of more of that as opposed to, you know, we didn't care for the, you know, for the, for the health and well-being of our people. It was how do we bring it all together and actually look at the cultural norms that are going to empower people in this new, you know, I mean, it's funny, right? Or not funny, but, you know, just interesting now where we are 15 months into a pandemic or 16 months into a pandemic where the world is, you know, kind of completely shifting again. I feel like five, six years ago, we were at that pivotal point too in the workplace where we made a lot of changes. Um, and now, and now we're here again <laughs> in a much different way, but, you know, similarly, I guess. <laughs> 
You talked about the resistance to change. I wonder what are some of the cultural norms that perhaps you see at Deloitte or elsewhere in corporate America that have had to shift or be made a little less rigid if we're going to shift a balance between you know, expectations that are loaded purely towards performance and productivity and perhaps, if not geared towards the whole person, at least recognize that that's an important part of um, an employee's uh, you know, experience at work. We were starting to see a recognition of the need for organizations to go beyond um, just kind of what I would call standard health and safety and, and care for the whole person and whole person well-being. Prior to the pandemic, I think the pandemic in many ways has accelerated that view. I will tell you that in the, the Deloitte, the global human capital trends for 2021, um, that well-being has been part of the trends for, for many years now. And but uh, this year and last year it was the number one trend or, or part of the top trends. And this year, what we saw um, is that even though um, well-being and you know, workforce well-being or employee well-being is is top of mind for C-suite executives, there's still a disconnect in terms of the importance of it, like where it ranks on in terms of you know where does the C-suite rank it in the top ten, and where do where does the workforce rank it in the top ten? And I and I think. Um, if I remember cor- correctly, the workforce ranks it as the number three priority and um, the C-suite is ranking it as number nine out of 10, right? And so it's on the list, which is great news, <laughs> but there's still the disconnect between the C-suite and what the work, you know, the workforce expectations. And so I think there's still a lot of work to do to kind of close that gap. I do think that, um, you know, things that, you know, are norms um, that I'm starting to see change. And, and I've started to see these change prior to the pandemic, you know, norms around sleep, right? I mean, in, in the corporate world, we used to celebrate the people that stayed up all night to get work done, right? I mean, you, nobody wants a surgeon or a pilot or a truck driver that has stayed up all night. <laughs> but in the work world, you know, we celebrate this, right? And we celebrate the people that, that work 80 to 90 hours. And now we have the research, we have the science to say, hey, no, right? Like, because the, 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 your, your ability to get good work done and not make mistakes. I mean, you know, we're an audit and accounting and consulting firm. Nobody wants their auditor doing their audit that hasn't slept. Right. (laughs) And so if you start to follow some of the most significant, like CEOs of the largest organizations or the largest companies in the fortune 500, so many of them have started to kind of talk about their sleep routine. They get a lot of sleep (laughs) because they can't perform if they don't. Right. And so there's kind of this recognition around like sleep and like the, you know, those hard charging, like we're going to work 80, 90 hours a week. It doesn't work. It just burns people out. And, and, and the bottom line suffers, right? Like everything suffers because that like, that's not what we're meant to do. And by the way, like, I think some of that, and we talk about this and work better together. We talk about, you know, the impact that technology has kind of had on us as human beings, in particular, our relationships, but just the impact that it's had on the workplace. And I'm not a Luddite. I love technology. I'm, I am a huge adopter of technology, but I probably haven't adapted to it in the ways that I need to. Um, but, you know, we have created this fear around technology and AI that it's going to, you know, it's going to take over all of our jobs. And so 
as a result, we do what humans do. We're now competing with our technology, right? Technology can work 24 hours a day. So can I, <laughs> right? Like, and that's a bad answer because we need to start adapting and using our technology to augment what makes us uniquely human. You know, humans are compassionate. We're empathetic. We're creative. We're, you know, creative problem solvers. We're cognitive. We can do things that you know, our computers and our AI aren't going to be able to do, regardless of what they tell you, they're not going to be able to like replicate that for a long time. <laughs> right. So there's always going to be a need for the humans in the workplace. Right. Like I have no doubt in my mind, there's always, and, and I think we'll, we need to get to a place where we need to celebrate the things that make us uniquely human and the things that make us uniquely human also require us to take care of ourselves, to show up. And I mean, Think about compassion. Are you able to be compassionate when you haven't slept? You're not. <laughs> you know, it's really hard to find that compassion. Are you able to be creative when you're not eating well and not getting any movement and you've just sat in front of your laptop for 10 hours, you know, barely going to the restroom, right? You can't be creative. Like it's just not possible. So we need to start celebrating those things that are human in the workplace, right? That make us uniquely human and not continue to try to compete with our machines, let the machines do what the machines do best. And let's do what we do best. And like, you know, come together and augment that to have, a, you know, a really spectacular, you know, work culture and workplace where, you know, there's a lot of, you know, respect and humanity for, for what the machines do and for what the humans do. Oh my, oh my. My mate. Made a permanent home in my head. You moving like a goddess, come my way, my way, my way. Your hips on the move, only a real one can do what you do. I caught a body, but you was the shooter. Damn. Shot me down one time, one time. Wanna hug me down a long time. Funny how the love can change sometimes. So we say, hey, pack up a bag, I'm pulling up on you. Let me show you my world She told me that I make her feel alive I can see the goodness in your eyes We can take a trip, just you and I You got it Oh my, oh my, oh my, oh my, oh my Tu adicto a ti mi flaca Tu cuerpo sacude como maraca Camero, gemero, so sube y baja Como en Caracas bailamos al ritmo del bajo so how do you know that what you're trying to achieve is working? And I'm kind of hoping one of those answers is that there are some number crunchers who are really unhappy that you're not squeezing enough productivity out of people. You're measuring performance much more broadly. Yeah. And, and the, the, the measure of productivity for me is, I don't love the measure of productivity because, um, whose definition of productivity? <laughs> I think that that's a, a, a misleading indicator, um, if you will. I, you know, so the number crunchers of the world, you know, I love them. I work with lots of them. Um, <laughs> I was very clear in, um, in my business case that um, this is a long-term play, you know, investing in the well-being of your people Yes, you will. You will start to see and feel and hear immediate results. But to really measure kind of the long term impacts to the bottom line, culture change 
isn't easy and it isn't fast, regardless of what it is that you're trying to change. <laughs> um, and so I think it's very important that, you know, that people understand that, you know, are there, are there things that you can look at, but the, the best measure of whether it's working is your people, you know? And so we are regularly, you know, checking in with our people, surveying our people, understanding the sentiment of our people, you know, what's working, what's not working, what would you like to see more of? What would you like to see less of? Um, one of the greatest things about the people of Deloitte is they love to give feedback. <laughs> and that's awesome, right? Because that, I mean, to me, there's no better measure of success. If they are seeing it and feeling it and they feel you know, safe enough to give you the feedback around what's working and what's not working and what they need more of or what they need less of, that in itself is a huge measure of success, right? And so I'm a believer in, you know, in more of that as a measure of success and kind of less of how do we, how do we squeeze more productivity out of people? I mean, who defines productivity and is squeezing more productivity out of people really what we want to do? Is it, you know, is it, is it quantity over quality? Or are we just trying to squeeze every little bit, right? And so I try to steer away from that as a measure as much as I can. It's probably not a popular answer, <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I seem to get by so far with it. <laughs> so it would have been a very different question um, in December of 2019 to ask you what, what did you see, um, whether at Deloitte or more broadly in, you know, the business world in America, are some trends around wellness but I feel like that script has been ripped up, uh, you know, for obvious reasons around COVID. So life remains very uncertain and what it means for the workplace also remains very uncertain. So, you know, that acknowledged, uh, you do occupy a, a pretty interesting position. So I am wondering just what do you feel? What do you see perhaps as, you know, a well-being trend? A lot of the trends are are still the same trends, they perhaps have just been accelerated, right? And so I think many organizations were starting to, you know, at least talk about, you know, the mental health of their workforce and, you know, providing more opportunities to educate and support in different ways, the mental health of the workforce. Um, I think that that is now front and center. Um, I'm very hopeful that that is one of the silver linings of this pandemic that you know, we have we have become very authentic and vulnerable about talking about our mental health um, in many ways. And you've seen a lot of leaders and celebrities and you know trying to normalize that conversation. Um, and so I think now, you know, what I'd like to see is, you know, continue the conversation, but let's start taking some real action around it. You know, what are we really going to do to destigmatize and normalize mental health in the workplace? And how are we really going to support our workforce? And this is globally because the systems, there's not a system in any country that I'm aware of that um, can effectively support the the mental health needs of of its of its population it's just an area that has been lacking for so many years um that there's a lot of investment that is that is needed there um so i think that that's going to continue to be a trend I, you know i think you probably would have to have your head in the sand if you weren't reading all of the 
the news about, you know, going back to the office or, you know, staying virtual or some version of hybrid work and flexible work. I think for us, you know, at Deloitte, um, you know, we are, we are looking at a, you know, a hybrid model. I don't think anybody knows exactly how that's going to play out and what the answers are, because we, we, we don't know. Um, we've never done it before. But just as we shifted to an all virtual environment 15 years ago, uh, 15 years ago, goodness, <laughs> 15 months ago. You it know, feels like 15 years. but right? uh... It does feel like 15 <laughs> years ago. You know, we will, we will figure it out and, and we will adapt and we will learn along the way. But I think it has opened up the conversation around flexibility. I mean, it's interesting, two months prior to, you know, the pandemic and kind of go, going into full quarantine here in the United States, Deloitte did an external marketplace survey around workplace flexibility and the stigma associated with workplace flexibility and why people were afraid to take, even though their organizations had benefits and programs for them to take advantage of, they were afraid because of the stigma associated with working flexibly or working remotely. Um, you know, now we have proven that we can work remotely and flexibly. And, you know, we have, we have proven that we are probably overproductive, right? Like we, I think we all need to learn to be a little less productive, <laughs> perhaps, right? And, and, and maybe we won't be burning out as quickly. Um, but, you know, that, that, you know, so, so I think the next big thing is, you know, what does, you know, what is the future of kind of the hybrid workplace and, and allowing, you know, at Deloitte, you know, allowing people to kind of choose, you know, and, and opt into the, the style of work that works for them, depending on, on what their life needs are, you know, I mean, there are people that like to go into the office, because it's, you know, it's very social and human connection is very important. There are people that are at a point in their life where, you know, they need more flexibility and want to be home because they have kids or they're taking care of, you know, elderly parents. Um, you know, I mean, there's just all kinds of preferences, right. And so, you know, workplaces and, and companies are going to have to adapt to what those needs are. You know, I mean, I, I've been reading a lot about the great resignation, right? Like people, again, they want to work for an organization that, you know, cares about them as a human being and what their needs are. And it's not just about the company, the company, the company all the time, right? And when you take care of your workforce, your workforce takes care of you. Like that's been proven time and time again, right? And so, you know, worrying about metrics around productivity. I mean, I get it, right? But again, I just, you know, and maybe it's because of my makeup and what my title is, but when you take care of your workforce, your workforce takes care of you. <laughs> People are increasingly making choices about what does well-being look like for them. And this American norm around work, just generally, regardless of, you know, Deloitte or corporate America, it's really strong and powerful. And so that, that suggestion that if you're not working, that somehow there is something lacking. And it feels like people are coming out of this side of the pandemic and just thinking, I, I don't want to return to a workplace that either makes me feel unwell, unsafe, or just frankly, isn't, just isn't good, a good place to be. Right. And I think, you know, <laughs> it's interesting, right? Because it's human nature, it's human psychology. You know, we, we all want to get back to some feeling of normal because everything, everything was stripped away from us, you know, <laughs> and it kind of almost overnight. Right. And so this desire to kind of get back to normal or go back to normal 
you know, I keep encouraging people like, let's move, like, let's move forward, right? Normal or, or like where we came from wasn't so fantastic. We want to remember the good and, and kind of forget the bad. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? But like, let's remember both and go forward and make it better, right? You know, um, but I, I think it's just everybody wants, they want to feel some sense of normalcy. We all want, I mean, I think we're all just hugely lacking in kind of human connection, right? <laughs> Outside of the people in our immediate family who are fantastic, but, you know, after 15 months, we get sick of them too, right? Like 24 <laughs> seven. I love my husband, but boy, I really want to see other people now <laughs> and hang out with them just for a few minutes. So from my view is, is, you know, not always about the money, right? I think people are thinking about life in a different way, right? And and what is okay with them and, and what's not okay with them, right? And so is jumping back into something that wasn't that great to begin with, <laughs> you know, prior to the pandemic is, you know, are you, are you going back just for the sake of going back? Or are you going to make different decisions for yourself? And I think that that's a really healthy and positive conversation for, for all of us to be having you know, with ourselves and, and with our loved ones as we make make those decisions. And I don't think that it's that people don't want to work hard. I think by nature, people want to work hard. I mean, we find meaning and purpose in, in the work that we do. And that's really important to us as human beings. I think what's happening is people are just thinking about life and work and the role that work plays in their life differently than they ever had before. Because perhaps before we weren't really given a choice. It was just what we did. You know, like it was just, you know, you just, you got a job and you went to work, <laughs> you know, and, and I think that there's enough people that are kind of stepping back and saying, let me reassess and kind of figure out what I want my life to look like and then move forward in the right role at the right organization for me. better together a thread through that is this idea of connection as humans and the importance that has to just the human condition and our sense of fulfillment. Would you perhaps just share a little bit more about that urge towards human connection and, and perhaps especially 
how that shows up in uh, for you at Deloitte and and you know for workplaces generally. Yeah, we didn't plan to write the book in the in the middle of a pandemic. Um, we had we kind of set out to to write the book um, just prior to the pandemic hitting, which was really interesting timing because a lot of the book we talk about um, the role of technology in the workplace and in our lives and the impact that it has had on our ability to you know develop meaningful relationships in the workplace and and you know some of the the downside and and some of the upside. And so it was really fascinating to write that at a time when honestly the technology that we had was the only thing keeping us connected. <laughs> right. <laughs> but we were also learning about Zoom fatigue. And, you know, I mean, so so everybody was kind of experiencing this, you know, overdose of of technology or or this reckoning of, you know, it's not the technology that's bad, it's how we use it, right? Like the technology is an inanimate object, right? It doesn't make us do anything or make us not, we still, we still have to decide, right? We were kind of learning about like our, you know, our decisions around how we use our technology and, and what works for us as individuals. And it, it, it was, it was really fun to watch, right? Like inside of Deloitte, it was like in the beginning, we just replaced every single in-person interaction with, you know, a video interaction, right? Like we didn't really step back to think about like, well, does this need to be video or do we even need to have a meeting? Is there another way to accomplish this? Can we pick up the phone? I mean, we kind of all forgot about the fact that like the good old fashioned phone still works, right? (laughs) It was like, you know, you know, death to the phone, right? Like everything's got to be video, right? Whereas before, before the pandemic, we were perfectly fine being on the phone with each other, right? And I even found myself that like some of the most meaningful conversations that I've had have been by phone because you know what? I could turn my back on my computer, right? Like I didn't have to focus on what was going on. I could be fully present in the conversation. Um, And so it was kind of fun to watch some of those things play out. You know, there's no doubt humans as a species, I mean, we're meant to connect, right? Like that's who we are. There's a, you know, we talk about this, this long-term Harvard study that's been going on for 83 years that the long, the number one determinant of your long-term health and happiness is the strength of your personal relationships. So if that's true in life, that's true in the workplace, because for those that are working, we spend, you know, a good eight, nine, 10 hours a day, a day at work. And if you don't feel connected to at least a handful of your colleagues. Um, it's significant. I mean, talk about productivity, right? It significantly impacts your productivity, your loyalty to the organization, your work product, you know, just your presenteeism, you know, kind of how you show up, you know, your, your feelings about how you show up. But if you have a few good friends, so we're not saying everybody in the workplace has to be your best friend. That's not logical or rational, and it's not possible. Um, But we give some guidance around kind of how do you decode workplace culture when it comes to relationships, right? So understanding the type of culture, the type of relationships that your workplace culture promotes or, you know, kind of detracts, right? And, And then, you know, what can be done at an organization team and individual level? Because all of us do, regardless of the organization that we work in, we all have a certain amount of control and power if we choose to use it. Um, and so we do give, you know, strategies for people, you know, at an individual level, at a team level, and, and, a, and then broader kind of at an organizational and leadership level. It's just such a fascinating time, because I do think that, 
you know, when we talk about the future of work and kind of more human workplaces and humanity in the workplace and, you know, optimizing human potential and who we are as human beings, the foundation of that is is strong relationships. None of that can be done, you know, without strong relationships, without feeling safe um, and you know, psychological safety, without feeling like we can be authentic and fully show up as ourselves and celebrate that. Um, and, and that requires us to feel connected to other humans. talked earlier, we were talking about the pandemic and, and you mentioned uh, that, that many people are thinking about life differently. And, and I want to use that to ask you about two aspects of how you have thought about life differently. And I didn't read this from your bio, but it's something that you're, uh, you've talked about, which is uh, aside from the professional burnout that you've experienced, you've also talked about personal healthcare issues that you've experienced with cancer as a cancer survivor. How did that shape how you think about life, how you think about well-being, and, and sort of what you've learned from that that you can continue applying? Yeah, um, it, it's a great question. And, um, you know, certainly when you get any type of diagnosis, like cancer, any life-threatening illness, COVID even, right? Um, for me, and I think for so many others, your your first thought is, you know, I'm going to die. And, um, you know, I think with, with cancer in particular, we, we, we do lose far too many people. And I'm, I'm, I'm very optimistic about kind of the, the future of cancer care and what we're, what we're starting to see come out with the new technologies that they've used with the vaccine, um, et cetera. But, you know, it, it, it does force you to, to look at life <laughs> differently. Um, you know, I think for, for me, um, I was diagnosed about 10 months into my role as the chief wellbeing officer. Um, and so after burnout, you know, taking on this role, it hit at a time in my life where I had, where I felt like I had really just like, I just finally hit my stride again, right? Like I was, you know, and, and then I was unexpectedly diagnosed. Um, I will say that um, for me, I, I chose to continue to work through my treatment because I work for an organization that you know, couldn't have been more supportive, you know, with leaders that said, you know, Jen, you do you, you, you do what you need to, if you need to take time off, take time off. And so I just kind of said, okay, I'm gonna play it by ear. If I feel really sick, then I'll take time off. I, I was very fortunate and that I never, I didn't feel great, but I never got very, very sick. So I continued to work because for me, it, 
kept a sense of normalcy in my life. Um, and I really enjoyed what I was doing and I felt energized by it. And so that was important to me. I also never stopped, you know, either going to the gym or going, like I moved my body every single day, even if it meant going to the gym and just sitting on a mat and doing a few stretches, it was more the kind of ritual of like getting out and, you know, in, in doing something with my body as opposed to kind of, I, I never wanted to like accept the fact or, or I didn't want it to define me, right? Like I knew I had cancer, but I didn't want it to define me. I think the biggest thing that I learned was, you know, during my treatment, I, um, I couldn't get through the day without taking a nap. Like I just like, I, you know, I would be standing and if I didn't go lay down, I would have probably fell down because I just didn't have the energy. And so I kind of had an idea of like what time that would happen every single day. And so I started blocking my calendar and I communicated it to everybody, you know, and I said, you know, like, okay, you know, I like, I can't get through the day. I'm going through cancer treatment. You know, I, I you know, you could be the most important person in the world. I can't take a call with you because <laughs> I'm going to be sleeping. <laughs> um, and and, you know, that was kind of my virtual, like I'm out of the office sign and I respected it. So, and so when you talk about boundaries, I respected it and I communicated it. So everybody else respected it. Right. And what I, what I learned after that was, okay, like this is actually a pretty cool practice, right? Like I'm going to keep doing this, even though I'm not in treatment anymore. That doesn't mean I'm going to take a nap every single day. Although, you know, I'm, I'm a fan of naps. Um, <laughs> and if I didn't sleep well the night before, you might actually catch me taking a nap, but you know, it was, it was that block of time on my calendar. That was me time. It was time for reflection. It's time for deep work, whatever I need in that day, I use that time. But what I found a few months after treatment was, you know, I knew what that time on my calendar was every single day. And Stuart would say, Hey, Jen, do you have 15 minutes? And I'd be like, you know what? I have a 90 minute block. I can give Stuart 15 minutes. And then Amy would say, Hey, Jen, do you have 15 minutes? And I'd be like, okay, well, I still have 75 minutes. I can give Amy for you. And I started negotiating away my me time. Right. And so when, what I learned, like the biggest lesson learned was boundaries, right? Like when I communicate my boundaries and when I respect my boundaries, everybody else does. And we tend to get upset with people who don't respect our boundaries. And oftentimes they don't respect our boundaries because they don't actually know it's a boundary because we haven't communicated it. <laughs> and so the number one person that needs to respect your boundaries is you. <laughs> and then you need to communicate it. And then if somebody doesn't respect your boundaries, then, okay, I'll let you get upset. But most of the time you can find another time or another way to get something done. I have found that, you know, 90% of the time, are there times when your boundaries need to be flexible? Absolutely. But if they're not, you know, if you are able to stick to your boundaries more often than not, when you need to flex, it's not that big of a deal because it's not every single day. And so for me, um, you know, it was kind of that wake up call, like, you know, four months later, I was like, wow, what am I, what am I doing? Why am I like, I'm negotiating. And, and I think the realization for me was, you know, I gave myself permission to do this when I'm sick, but I'm not giving myself permission to do this when I'm well. And that's pretty messed up, <laughs> you know, because we should give ourselves permission to do it when we're well. So we don't end up in a place where we have no choice. Right. And so that was kind of the big like aha for me.
you host a well-being specific podcast. The people you speak with are fascinating people that, that live in that world or can speak to aspects of that world in our lives. I'm wondering if there's anything that has just sort of surprised you or perhaps a lesson that you've learned. Goodness. I mean, I, there's, there's so many. So the, the podcast is called work well, all one word, and it's available externally on, on any podcatcher. Um, I, I mean, I, I feel like I learn a, a lesson every time I, I talk to somebody, I, you know, we, 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 re- we release biweekly. Um, so every other week and every time we record one, I, I feel like it's my own, um, kind of, you know, personal therapy session for, for the world to hear. Right. <laughs> um, and, and so, I mean, you know, some of the most powerful for me, um, Dr. Susan David, who wrote the book, emotional agility, we talked a lot about, um, emotions and emotions in the workplace and, um, you know, what, what emotions tell us, um, we just released one with Dr. Judson Brewer around um, anxiety and unwinding anxiety and strategies for anxiety. And, you know, he talks about, you know, getting curious about the anxiety. And as somebody who lives with anxiety, that was, you know, I I read his book and then I had him on the podcast. And so, um, you know, just the the whole idea of, of getting curious around the anxiety as a way to, you know, as a strategy to combat anxiety has been a great, has been a game changer for me you know, to just take that moment and be like, you know, like, why, where is this, you know, getting curious instead of, you know, instead of coping or, you know, in, in ways that aren't healthy, um, you know, really getting curious as to, to why I'm feeling this way, um, instead of what I'm feeling, but you know, the why. So that was really powerful, but gosh, I mean, I feel like I learned something probably like you do right from every single guest. And so it's hard to like pick one or pick a favorite, right. Cause they're just, all they're all awesome and i feel like i learned something you know every single time My guest today has been Jen Fisher, who is Deloitte's Chief Wellbeing Officer in the United States. Jen, thank you so much for sharing your time with us. It was a great conversation, so I really appreciate you being on today. I definitely do have favorite guests, but I can't say it on air because then everybody will get offended. I'm one of them, right? Totally. New number one. <laughs> Thanks, yeah, everybody. I figured, I mean, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's the end of this week's show. You can listen again to this show and others by subscribing to the podcast at livesradioshow.com and find us on social media at Lives Radio Show. The music playing you in and playing you out each week was created specially for the show by Andrew Bailey. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives Radio Show and Podcast. Join me next week for fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, and more.